Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Roger? Roger, what are you doing up there? What are you doing? Are you entertaining another one of your men? You slut! Absolutely. <laughs> Knowing me, no. <laughs> you and all your gentlemen callers at all hours of the night. I mean, this woman knows me very well, apparently. <laughs> oh, Troy, what are you getting me into this week? Hey, this wasn't my pick. We have someone else to... To, to blame or to, uh, <laughs> you know, thank. However you look at this film. Some to celebrate. Might. We're going to celebrate them, yeah. We actually, uh, yeah, this is, um, well, welcome all you Dark Knight of the Podcast fans and, you know, foes, if there's any of you out there listening, there's, <laughs> I can't stand these fuckers, but I'm listening anyway. <laughs> I wonder if anyone does that. Probably. Us. Oh, just, probably. Just a bitch about, mm, like, shih tzus. Just, mm, yeah. <laughs> but we actually have a, Special guest. You guys love our special guest episodes. We've had some great guests in the past, and we have one one more awesome, amazing guest tonight to join us to talk about a very odd film that he chose. So blame him if you don't like this film, or if you love this film, blame him. But we are joined tonight by indie horror filmmaker, the one and only. And this 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 dude has a lot of films under his belt. He's way younger than us, I believe, Roger. So it kind of makes me like, he's done like 10 films and I, yeah. But we have Jay Paul Mary joining us. Good evening, Jay. Yay, Jay. Hi, Hi guys. <laughs> Jay, are you getting some slight showgirl vibes from us? Like Troy and I are already plotting your oh, demise. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Yes, I'm loving it. How dare, how dare this younger gay come out of the scene? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I'm young anymore because I just turned 30 uh, in September. Oh, go fuck but, yourself, Jay. Right? But everyone still says I look 24, so I'm like, we'll go with that. You do, Jay. Jay, you're so cherubic. Now that I see your right? face on my monitor, you have the face of a babe. Right? It's the Puerto Rican jeans keeping me Oh, up. God. Them Puerto Rican yep. jeans. We love them. But Jay, th- thank you you so much for taking time out of i'm sure your busy <laughs> evening because you are, you have just been filming these last couple of weeks and doing all kinds of fun stuff so we really thank you for taking time to uh join our little podcast here to talk about a like i said an odd film but first of all before we get into the film we want to give you a chance to introduce yourself tell our listeners a little bit about you what you do what you've done what you are doing all right. Um, so my name is Jay Palmieri, and um, I'm a New Jersey-based filmmaker, but I make a lot of my films mostly in New York. Um, I graduated from New York Film Academy in uh, 2011, and uh, so far I've made like 10 films, uh, two features, and I shot my second feature uh, with Andrew Froning. Me and him co-directed, co-wrote it together. We shot that in August in 10 days. It was like, <laughs> it was like you know how like in Scream, they say that finale scene was 21 days of 
nights or whatever. Like it was like long days. Um, and then I've shot two short films. 2020, I was like in a stump of like uh, what's called writer's block. 2021 so far, cranking them out. <laughs> That's awesome though. Yeah. That's awesome. You, you definitely got some inspiration from possibly the, the shit show that has been the last yes. year and a half. <laughs> Yeah, and Jay, we actually we have, to, we have to mention this. We actually, me and you, actually had a chance to actually meet in person yes. not too long ago, mm-hmm. and we had dinner together and just sat and just chatted whole, yes. like literally for like five hours. <laughs> I think the the waiters were wanted to throw us right. out, but we were just sitting there just chatting. And this is when I kind of knew I'm like, oh my god you would be an amazing guest on the podcast. And then when you said you listen to the podcast and you love it, I'm like, oh, well, yes, you must come on now. Yeah, I'm a big fangirl of the dark Ooh, Well, we are. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my God. I, f- I feel like... I feel like Jan Brady right now that I wasn't, inc- I wasn't, I wasn't invited right? <laughs> to your party, but you know what? You guys can go fuck yourselves. <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, Troy is hyped up this episode. Cause I mean, first of all, we love getting other queer filmmakers on. Mm-hmm. It's just a different point of view. Um, and I think when you get queer LGBTQ plus filmmakers together to chat, we're seeing it from an angle that, uh, yeah, we view horror differently from the rest of the fanatics out there, and uh, there's a there's a huge appreciation for it, and and I'm really happy that you agreed to come onto this episode. I will. I not really. I've not seen any of your work prior to this. Troy introduced me to you, um, but I did check out your short film Carved, that is available on YouTube right now. It's only like 13 minutes long, but I gotta say, like, I'm I am super intrigued to see more of your work. I'm pretty blown away by the caliber of, t- of acting talent that you've secured, too. I don't know if this is a consistent with your projects, but, like, I was really impressed. Like, the cinematography. I loved the Witches of Eastwick vibes I got from it because it definitely left me feeling like that the, the cherry pit scene. Yeah. That maybe be some kind of an influence there. But I was like, I loved it. And I loved the whole, like, just the concept behind it, the simplicity. There are little details, like the the damaged pussy <laughs> line with the uh, little tiara that you put on it. I was like, this guy just knows what he's doing. So um, I'm super excited to watch more of your work. A little thing about for that sure. film, uh, what's called, we shot we shot that in one day for 10, in 10 hours on October 23rd. My editor finished, like, picture locked it. Uh, in four days, and then my two composers, uh, they uh, did their work in um, two days, and we re- had post-production was complete October 31st, and then we released it November 1st. So I'm, like, grateful to my team. They literally worked magic, the fact we <laughs> got it ready in eight days. <laughs> <laughs> that would have taken me four years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they, they, they gave me four fucking years right. to get that thing done. So good yeah. on you, man. Seriously, it was really impressive. It's great. And his, yeah, I've seen, I've seen a lot of Jay's work. He, um, he has shared it with me. Plus, uh, me being, you know, part of the Houston Horror Film Festival, he has submitted films to the festival that have been accepted. Leia, uh, Taste. Uh, so I've been able to see a lot of his work and was just really impressed. There is a, oh, an aesthetic to his films that, is very just what's the word I'm looking for? Erotic, uh, <laughs> erotic, but no, that's that. Yes, <laughs> but I mean, all of your films, you can, you you have your your own mm. like stamp on. Yeah, them. like you can tell, like all your films have a very similar vibe. Very, you have your own. You've developed a voice mm. already with your films that that really carries through and and is very strong. And and you, you do have to really appreciate the heavy LGBTQ plus 
themes that you run through your films and <laughs> and you got to work with Leslie yes, Donaldson. That was a that was like I'm still shocked that happened. <laughs> Welcome Jay. We we're, we're going to get into this film, but before we do, we do have to just again give a shout out to our Patreon. Roger and I just you know, we, we're just busy little bees because we're not taking a break. Because last night we were on this, you know, little podcast recording tool for about two hours discussing our next Patreon episode, which is Return to Oz, which may sound like a very odd choice for a horror podcast. But fuckers, have you seen this film lately? It's terrifying. <laughs> It is a mind fuck. And if if any of you watched it as children, I'm sure you're scarred by it, just like myself. So I thought, why not reintroduce this as an adult and see if it still holds up? And you know what? It fucking holds right. up uh, in more in more ways than one. And um, in some ways, I appreciate it more in my 30s than I ever did as a child because I was too busy being terrified of it. But that's for our Patreon. That's for our Patreon. And talk about talk about giving head because you know she she changes them off. Sixty three of them. <laughs> right. All like, if that was me. not sixty nine. <laughs> I wish I had that ability going out of the town. Oh my god! Right. Uh, so our November Patreon feed basically looks like blue barrels and <laughs> ruby slippers. Wow, that's that should be our tagline: blue barrels and ruby slippers. Dark night of the podcast. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's going to be a good episode if you're on our uh, if you know if you're. If you're following our Patreon already, thank you. You're going to enjoy it. If not, um, I like to think this is an example of some of the more unique material we're going to present. That's uh, not something we would normally be covering on our on our mainstream channel, but we're doing something new. You know, uh, you know what is not something new though. I got to say, the, the film that <laughs> the film that we are invest uh, investigating today, talking about, is something that is falling right in line with the kind of material I would anticipate three gay men to talk about on a horror movie podcast. And I can't <laughs> fucking wait because this thing is bonkers. Yeah. So Jay, you, you, um, you, you basically brought this title up as one that you would want to cover. So why don't you just briefly tell the listeners what the title is and kind of why you, why you picked this one to, to cover on the podcast. Cause I really left it up to you guys. I think of a couple titles and this is one you came up with and um, I was very intrigued with it, but why don't you tell everyone why you chose this title and what it is. So the movie is called unhinged. It's a little slasher film from 1982 and it's basically about these three girls have a car crash and then they wake up in this like mansion with these two spinster women. And I don't know, because like, I remember the first time I, I think I bought it at Best Buy and the cover just intrigued me and it left an impression on me when I was young, because I, especially that ending, which we'll get to later on. But I don't know, I just was a movie that I never really saw talked about much. It's kind of very obscure, but it also has a very, uh, what's it called? Controversial topic. And I know when Troy and I hung out, we were talking about all different slasher films, films we like, and then we were talking about controversial horror films and i was like oh well unhinged is one of my favorite controversial movies and i've always wanted to see that one discussed and then we were like oh that could be an interesting one to talk about it is a very interesting one to talk about i think and it is one that does not get mentioned very often at all certainly not as much as some of the other films that deal with a, a similar theme or a similar ending mm. like sleepaway camp or dressed kill uh, where you constantly hear people uh, especially, you know, uh, nowadays, you know, going back and, and talking about these films and the, the the themes that they, you know, introduce as being problematic. 
Uh, and this film has a very mm. similar ending. Not spoiling it, yeah. But and you just you never hear it talk about it. I just wonder if it's because it's just too under the radar. It never hit the mainstream. It never really garnered like a cult status. And I can kind of see why, because it is a tough film to watch in many respects. Don't try to watch it if you're tired. Well, maybe do try to watch it if you're tired because it'll put you to sleep. But if you can like <laughs> devote some time to sit down and really watch the movie, yes, it has its issues. God, Lord, it has issues. But there are some really <laughs> just, I think, interesting, creepy elements to this film, for sure. Yeah, I I agree. Um, it it kind of amazes me at this point how many movies we've identified that are tackling the same kind of theme, uh, which we will get into as we start to explore the movie. And you guys who are listening will start to really understand as we explore the movie. Um, but this is something that we've seen come up several times now. And, and uh, you know, there is such it's considered such a taboo topic kind of going into this exploration of, of gender um that that we'll see it at play and um it's just it's it's kind of surprising to me that it became such a staple in a lot of these movies uh to be kind of a key component for explanation as to why certain characters act the way they act or operate the way they operate um it's the more i'm becoming aware of more and more films like this i'm just kind of blown away by how prevalent this was within the genre especially during this era uh, and I think that's kind of what I meant when I said that this is not, it's not a new territory for us to talk about this anymore. We're finding more and more titles that really deal with, like, let's just put it out there. The idea of transgender, gender dysmorphia, uh, the approach of of people having to hide their identities and how it affects them long term. This comes into play really heavily. Um, it's just intriguing to me. This movie gives me a severe Grey Gardens vibe, but like if if Grey Gardens was a horror movie, it's actually more. Have you ever seen the the, the, the documentary now series with Fred Armisen and um, Bill Hader? Like I I want to see them redo this because uh, I feel like this. This film would be an amazing <laughs> stage production performed by all drag queens. Like, like, there's a lot of potential with this. Oh yeah, but um, I'm, yeah. I I did look into this a little bit more, and this movie was actually remade. I don't know if you guys knew this. Yeah, in, it do, it's it, oh, it, it does. Yes, I mean no. We'll yeah, I, it it's that. it looked kind of bad. It's a 2017 remake, and they they take the most it interesting part of the movie. <laughs> And they remove they remove it. I mean, it's it's yeah yeah. So I think they were. I think I think the filmmakers were probably a little um, scared or uh, intimidated to try to tackle that mm-hmm. issue nowadays mm-hmm. because they they basically yeah they that, that that plot element is gone. That's a shame. And they replace it with they replace it with a supernatural element. Oh so, god, yeah. It's basically a remake and name only. And then, of course, there's the... Don't get this confused. Don't see our little title episode and think you're getting the Russell Crowe movie that just <laughs> Is came out. Is it where he's either. like an angry driver? Who gets yes. <laughs> I watched, yeah, I watched that on my flight to Alaska. Yeah. <laughs> and you know who's in that, Roger, that gets brutally murdered in the middle of a restaurant is Jimmy Simpson. Oh, my God. It's all co- yes. coming full circle here at Dark Knight of the Podcast. But, um, yeah, you know, I have absolutely no interest in, in viewing this remake. I understand maybe why, because it seemed very much like they removed that element just from the trailer material. They did. And uh, 
I hate to say what a shame because I know some gays yeah. are going to be like, oh, that's offensive. But like, honestly, the the, mo- the most intriguing element of this film, let's put it out there, is that because it is a taboo topic. It's the ending. Yeah. And it builds up nicely. Well, it builds up slowly to the ending. Let's get into it. Yeah. So this film, 1982, directed by Don Gronquist who really only has one other directorial um, credit to his name. I think it was the 1977 film called Scalpel, which I haven't seen. The The film was basically was filmed for $100,000. That was the budget, which doesn't sound like a lot nowadays, but back in 82 would have been about, what, a half a million dollars probably. Decent sized budget. I don't think the film necessarily looks that expensive, honestly, but... You know, they I, they did some things right, but yeah, the mm. budget kind of, it, it was interesting to me because it really doesn't look like they spent a lot of money on this film. Plus, they hired a, a bunch of actors. This film was filmed, I believe, in, correct me if I'm wrong, it was either Portland or Seattle, one of the two. I think Portland. And they use, yeah, they basically uh-huh, used uh-huh. like local community theater actors. And in some cases, I think, I think high yeah. school theater actors. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So I mean, they they didn't. It's not like they got star power or anything like that. I think most of the budget went to renting the giant mansion that serves as the main location for the film, which was a tourist actually attraction during the day. So they had to film at night from like five p.m. to seven a.m. and they filmed it over a course of I believe nineteen days. So it's unhinged. But that location, I just gotta say, like, if anything stands out to me oh, yeah. in this movie, if it's anything beautiful. looks of having budget in any way, it's this stunningly beautiful location, which really, like, adds a level of elegance to this movie that it otherwise would not have. Which we see the exterior of literally five <laughs> dozen times because it's the only, tra- it is the, o- I don't know if you guys noticed it, it's the only transition shot they use in the film. Yeah. Anytime they transition from one scene to the next, it's yeah. a shot of the mansion. And this film, it is slow. It does drag. It moves mm-hmm. at a molasses pace. But l- luckily, luckily, I will say I think it's bolstered by a, a handful of appropriately eccentric and over-the-top key performances from a few of the antagonists <laughs> that really elevate the material, especially against some very wooden <laughs> Pinocchio wooden performances <laughs> from the rest of the cast. And we'll get there. But yeah, I really think that, that if it wasn't for a few of these key players being as big and over the top and, you know, in turn effective, I mean, it is effective. When I say great gardens, I mean, these two dames are, are, <laughs> are not all completely there and it, and it works in the movie's favor. It does. <laughs> Yeah, I thought the actress uh, Janet uh, Penner, who played Marion, I thought she was the only, for me, solid actor. Like, there were some moments I actually thought, like, she made the material seem very, like, grand. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But those, the three girls, nope. those young girls, I was like, oh, no. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> let's, let's get them killed and get them out of here quick. Because they aren't doing anything for the material. <laughs> Especially poor Gloria. <laughs> Gloria, her. Hey, I wonder how much she got paid for this because her literal whole job was to lay in a bed and not be yeah. seen until like the. <laughs> I forgot she. I literally forgot she was part of the story yeah. until a transitional moment. We'll get there. We're getting ahead of ourselves. But God, I mean, at least we know there's an excitement to talk about this movie, which I did not know existed until just now. So. <laughs> 
Yeah, so the film the film begins with a black screen and a radio alarm goes off. And the the screen just like everything else in this movie, it just Oh god. Oh, <laughs> they don't they don't know how to like speed things along. Like the 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 screen stays black for such a long time that I literally when I first watched it thought my DVD was broke. I literally <laughs> mm-hmm. went over to my DVD delivery, took it out, like wiped it off and put it back in because the screen stays black for that long. Yeah. I'm not lying. And it's, you hear this radio alarm and the different commercials. Then all of a sudden, all of a sudden we get the girl who we end up, it's Terry who ends up being our main girl, turn on her bedroom light. And we're like, Oh, for God's sakes, that could have been like five seconds. But don't forget when it was still black, we hear her like moaning for like no reason, like her, her moaning (laughs) for no, I'm like, okay. (laughs) She's literally just <laughs> groaning from waking up, which, like, I understand that. Like, every morning, I'm like, oh, fuck my life, like, yeah. <laughs> under my breath. So, um, <laughs> I do like that. I do like there is a little bit of exposition here with the radio broadcast because the radio announcer is like, oh, it's October 22nd. And if you're planning on going to the Pinewood Music Festival, you yeah. better pack warm. And then there's a Taco Time commercial that got. It's like there's this little t- commercial for a, a restaurant called Taco Time. It's like <laughs> the, Taco Time, Taco Time. That's who funded time. the movie. <laughs> that's, that's where they got right. the hundred thousand was from that commercial. <laughs> but she wakes up and turns on her bedroom light, and we're like, okay, we were basically in in some poor girl's bedroom for five minutes in the dark. <laughs> Cut to full titties in the shower. Yep, on that very like you know the standard. <laughs> Gotta yeah. love full titties within, you know, the first couple minutes of the film. I do like the line. She's on the phone with her mom. Her mom is basically communicating that she's not a fan of her friend Nancy. Nancy, who's chock full of energy. Uh, but, uh, um, and Terry um, makes a comment. I'll make sure to excuse myself when she busts out the heroin. And I was like, okay, well, you know, that's a line I would probably use. So I appreciate that. Terry is... As we said, all three girls are very un, uh, very wooden. However, Terry, sometimes during certain moments, it works in her favor, I feel. She just reads very understated. Um, and I know girls like this who just look bored with life. <laughs> like, bored with everything. Very heavy-lidded <laughs> in the eyes. Her eye makeup is fantastic. I mean, all these girls, look they look straight oh, out yeah. of a Maybelline ad. There are moments, moments, that I think Terry actually is not bad rare <laughs> but occasional but normally it's the dealing like it's when she does give like a line of sarcasm or expresses like some like like disgust towards something it works in her face yeah i do like the fact that her mother is like scolding her and is like i don't know how i let your you and your father talk <laughs> me into letting you go to this music festival i'm thinking okay this girl lives alone and she's 20 how do, how were you gonna stop her i, I it was just odd. And then, yeah, she's like, that Nancy's nothing but trouble. You better, I, you know, I don't like you hanging out with her. <laughs> There's like mother issues in this film. Like the mothers in this film are just like overprotective and just like. There's woman issues <sighs> in this film. Well, and me- like beyond mother. And men oh, issues. Yeah. So let's get that clear. This movie doesn't like, this movie doesn't like anybody. Let's put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a very hateful movie. <laughs> Just across the board. This movie does not like right. the antagonist or the protagonist. 
But we do have the friends pull up in a, in a little white car, and we meet playing some playing some rock. Yeah, some rock waking music. up the neighborhood. Well, and you know what? One thing I like is overall this movie. It, it's glaringly low budget, but there are a few moments that I actually really appreciate the sound design and the score. We get some really great synth score at certain points that really is just like trippy and foreboding and at times there's some really good usage of sound effects in this film even there's this conversation that's going on with the girls at the car and they're blaring this rock music but then it cuts to a wide shot and they adjust the music like appropriately to make it sound like it's from a distance and it just felt like very like a natural choice and i was like wow in some of these movies of this scale they wouldn't fucking think to do that so good on them so there are moments that you can tell that the people making this film are competent yeah my favorite was the the moment in the car where they're like doing the little joke where she's like, if you were a gentleman, you wouldn't make me do something like this. And she's like, well, if you were a lady, you wouldn't talk with your mouth full. And poor little Gloria's like, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Every time they said Gloria's name, and I think this is just because I'm a gay man, yeah. also because of the area or of the era. I just kept thinking, of, Gloria, oh, I think they got Gloria, your number, I Gloria. Did. And I was like, yeah. just cut to Laura Branigan. <laughs> like, rest in peace, Laura Branigan. But I was really hoping for a musical interlude. But I mean, this, this, it's basically them driving to this music festival. And let's be honest, again, this scene goes on forever. Just driving, yeah. driving, driving. They smoke pot. They make some jokes. They We get an aerial shot of the car driving some more. They do some more talking. They're just driving, driving, driving. Finally, it starts raining. And finally, something happens because I, I just thought of no word. What do they do? They hit something? I was a little confused. I don't know. They like hit like a tree. Like a, like a branch. Yeah, like, like a thing a tr- in the road or something. They yeah. hit a branch and they fly into the ditch. Abruptly. <laughs> like yeah. you, get ten, you get 10 minutes of driving. Area, I mean, you know these fuckers have a helicopter, and they're like, we're filming with it all day. Like, and we're using all the all of the footage. But, like, yeah, yeah. They, then they hit a tree, and they go into a ditch, and, like, it cuts away immediately. Like, you don't see any interior shots. You don't see anyone reeling from the damage. Like, it just yeah. cuts. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? After all that goddamn driving, that's all you're going to give me? <laughs> but, yeah, whatever. The screen goes black for a few seconds, and then it... Oh, Hazily goes in and we see these two, I would say odd looking characters staring down at Terry, who's laying in bed. And we get introduced to Marion Penrose, who owns this house, and Norman Barnes. Now, right away, folks, we got to mention the psycho connection here. The film very much has a plot wise, has a very heavy psycho vibe. And I feel like the filmmakers and the filmmaker was like, yeah. oh, I, I really want the audience to like really get that. So I'm going to name a character Marion and I'm going to name a character Norman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't really work in its favor. If anything, it seems um, it seems like a cheap trick. A few things I want to acknowledge. Um, I just misstating this during the car ride. There mm. was a radio transmission that mentioned missing girls oh yeah this comes into play it's very subtle but it does come up a second thing i want to acknowledge is marion looks as though someone took shelly duvall and deflated her of of with all of her life on her (laughs) like she looks like shelly duvall if she just like was was just sucked all the air out of her she looks like a very deflated shelly duvall um but she's you know what god love her this woman Gives her all in a head in this in this 
character, and I gotta say it right now, she is devoted yeah. to Marion Primrose, Brett Penrose, whatever the fuck her last name is. She is, but Norman apparently rescued the two of them. Or the rescued the two of them. Well, two of them because you only see two of them throughout the whole fucking movie until the end. The three of them. Uh, he <laughs> came across their car, rescued the, 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 the three of them. We find out that Gloria is pretty banged up. She can't really go anywhere. Um, Terry obviously asks to use the phone. They don't have a phone. That should be a red flag, but it's not. Uh, and then they ask about... And, and Terry asks about, like, how can we get out of here? And we learn that the, the roads are wet they have to walk through a rugged terrain. The town's three miles away. And if you get, you know, if you try to get walk, you're going to run into some trouble. My favorite was how he kept referring and they repeated a few times during the conversation. He's like, the brunette friend, the little one, the dark haired friend, the little one. I was like, <laughs> I'm like, I think we get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, He's not very. And this character, what's his purpose in this film, I guess? <laughs> I don't know. He's like the the groundskeeper. He is no, no, no. I get that. I'm just saying, like, w- w- there's really I guess no to have the name to hint that Norman. he's the, yeah, to, like a red have, herring, the red herring, and to have Norman. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um. Right away, I have to acknowledge because they start telling them you can't walk there. the The weather is horrible. <laughs> the weather in this yeah. movie is inconsistent. <laughs> beginning to end like it goes from like monsoon season (laughs) to like crystal clear daylight to like a calm breeze to light illustrated lightning that seems to be pummeling the earth like within minutes i'm saying seconds transitional footage so it is very weird like i don't understand does it always storm in the evenings here because (laughs) they they make it sound like everything is like flooded but the next day, every, yeah. everything's fine. So, like, I, it just doesn't really play in the movie's favor. Well, it is the Northwest. It's Portland. It's rain, right? Isn't that what it's known for? I don't know. We do have to acknowledge this is the first really glimpse that you get of how wooden of an actress. Her name is um, Laurel, Laurel Munson is the uh. actress. So she's never done anything before. I can see why. But, Laurel, bless your heart, you... <laughs> You, I don't even. She never done anything after Stop. either. <laughs> I don't even think she. I honestly don't even think she tried. I mean, yeah. I have never seen a group of actresses in a film who are so dead in the eyes. Like, yeah. Like everybody here looks like they're like their minds are just elsewhere. Like her and and Nancy. <laughs> uh, like Nancy, there are times yeah. I look at Nancy and her pupils are fully dilated, and she just looks like she has no idea where she is. She thought she was doing something completely different. She's saying the dialogue off of cue cards, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, these to have these two as like your main two protagonists again does not do this film any favors. No, and and that's the thing is or, the the pacing of this film is very deliberate and very slow, and it wouldn't be so bad if the actresses and i'm not talking about the actress that plays uh marion or her mother because they're they're serviceable actually they're pretty good but the two the, the, the two main characters that we're supposed to care about are so bad let's put it out there they're bad they're they're wooden they're bad they they have no idea how to emote they'd have no idea how to respond realistically to something that somebody says that may be you know something that would raise your eyebrow these two have no idea how to respond it's just they're horrible performances so you as the audience member as an audience member it's you can't connect to these two girls because all you're doing is watching two horrible actresses so i feel like if they would have cast stronger actresses 
yeah that could have you know displayed emotion displayed the just the oddness of the whole situation that you would have mm. maybe cared about them a little bit more and it would have made the pacing less painful yeah it's it's uh it's a film that is very dependent on long stretches of dialogue heavy sequences <laughs> single shot dialogue they literally i really think that the the director or the cinematographer set the camera down <laughs> on a table and just let it stay there until the bitch delivered her 10 minute monologue he wasn't going to try to <laughs> f- f- zoom in or do any interesting shots nope he put, he set the camera down on that fucking table and walked away to have his coffee break i guarantee it because he's like i know this this dialogue coming up is three pages long i'm out of here <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it definitely it definitely hurts the film because when you have a sequence where these, for example, there's a moment where the two girls are sitting on a bed talking to, to each other and like fucking like put me to sleep. Oh my god, they like it's like oh, watching yeah. mannequins. <laughs> well, we're gonna get there because yeah, we'll because there's something that happens in that scene that is so fucking ridiculous. And their reaction to it just seals the deal. But we do find out that mother lives in this mansion with uh, Marion. And she tells Terry that dinner is going to be at eight and not to be late because mother does not like to be kept waiting. No, she does not. No, she fucking does not. Let's take a moment to acknowledge Edith, uh, Edith Penrose, if we could. I know earlier you said, um, Jay, you said that you thought that Marion was the one really serviceable serviceable performance. I have to say, after watching watching through this film a few times now, I really thought that Edith, when she was on camera, for the few times that she was, I mean, she she kept my pulse going. <laughs> like, like she, she, I thought, really stole the show in the scenes that she's in. She's a, I mean, she's a bit over the top, but I think the movie needed it. <laughs> like, it's like life... She's the life support at this point. <laughs> like, but I mean, this woman, give her some. Which isn't saying much. You're relying on a 90 year old woman to be the life support of a movie. <laughs> but she really, I mean, um, she really in, uh, in, encompasses that old money, pretentious. Yeah. And batshit. Like, I mean, like, I mean, it very convincing, even, even when being over the top, like when she gets wheeled in and she asks Nancy, uh, of like her family heritage, if they have to do with a certain steel company or something like just the way she delivers it, there's an arrogance to all of her dialogue. And I really appreciated her approach to this character. It did keep these scenes lively. Oh, I agree with that. Yeah. I do feel like she bring, and I, she brings a certain, like, hate to use this word with this movie, but she brings a certain class to the film mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. yeah, there are a few line deliveries that are a little not good, but for the most part, she really, like you said, nails this whole like character that, that she is playing, which is this, yeah. you know, once wealthy, you know, a uh, woman that used to entertain all the time and, and lived, lived off wealth and just had all the parties, had all everything she wanted. And now has been resorted to basically holding up and doing nothing and not seeing anybody except her daughter because of something that happened with her um, husband that we find out here in a little bit. Yeah. And they, they really, uh, with, with the casting of her and Marion opposite each other, they, they made a very wise casting choice in getting two women who perfectly capture 
the the hostile mother-daughter tension that exists. Like, these two play very well off of each other, and they have two really key scenes of each other just going at each other's throats, basically. Um, and, And these are the two performers I mentioned earlier that I think take this film, which could be a very mediocre film, and they do elevate it to being rather entertaining when they are on screen. I have a question. During there's this dinner sequence that comes up here. The the two girls can't act, but my God, they're lovely. Like they they are beautiful. <laughs> Their eye makeup is exquisite. Um, but um, there are these moments where the mother focuses, like obsesses over these two like little metal cups, or it seems like, or something. Are they like a salt and pepper shaker? I couldn't yeah. tell what they yeah. were. What is what is there? Is this something? Is this a thing that I should know what this means? <laughs> Does this have purpose? <laughs> That's my note too. I did not know what it was. I thought they were maybe shot glasses. <laughs> because there are two No, there are two moments in the film where she's eat they're all eating and then she stares at these things and starts getting all wild-eyed and like shaking and convulsing and like reaching towards And she like hovers her hands over them like it's like uh what's it called like um like a crystal yeah, ball. It's very yeah, weird. she like obsesses over them. This is leads into one thing about the movie that in some ways I think it it's a handicap, but in other ways I think it works in its favor. There's a lot of elements of this movie that are left open-ended and are not really explained. Lots of little sequences, lots of things that happen. For example, there's a series of sequences of somebody's eye watching through a peephole. You never know exactly who, which character it is. You come to find there are are two characters it could be. But it's never really stated who it is that's doing certain things. There's a lot of little things over the course of this movie that you're given little details, but they're not really ever tied up neatly with a bow. And, And I like that. I honestly like it because it gives this kind of air of mystery. Like, for example, what is this old woman you know, convulsing over. <laughs> There's no explanation given. Is she maybe she's just crazy? Is just that's just proving that she really is unstable at this point in her old age, or is there something more to it? I don't know. Mm. But um in some ways I think it actually works in the film's favor. The one thing I did also find funny was like how you were saying like when we do see them at the dinner, the girls, like they're so glam, like they're like ready for a photo shoot. I was like, they just got from a car crash and then they have all their makeup all their fashions <laughs> like Norman thought to help bring their bags with them too. <laughs> <laughs> and not a word of glory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck her. You know, she's fine. <laughs> they don't even try to bring her down. But this, this whole dinner scene as the dinner scene goes on, it gets kind of more and more awkward. Mm. Edith is, Edith is making little jabs towards Marion about how Marion can be very difficult and Marion doesn't tell her anything because there is like this scene where um, she is, Terry asks Edith if they've lived there long. And Edith gives this answer about, well, time stops being important when you've lost everything that, you know, you used to live for or some weird thing. And then Nancy makes the comment about, that reminds me of something my father said. And right away, Edith starts going into about a male authority. And how now Marion doesn't respect her and and lies to her because she knows that Marion is having men come to the house in the middle of the night. And she even, and even um, Marion starts to object. And Edith is like, shut up, you slut. (laughs) 
<laughs> Let's look at Marion and be real. You really think this poor broad's having men over every night? I was wondering, <laughs> where does she think? Who? I know you live out in the middle of nowhere, but are men that desperate? Does this woman look like a siren to you, luring men? Like she's she's haggard <laughs> because of you, mother. You 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 are so horrible to her. No wonder she looks so weathered. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and it's funny because Marion gets up to leave the table. You know, at one moment after after Edith calls her a slut, she like gets up to leave the table and and Edith's like, sit down right now. And she does. So, you know, that mother still has some sort of control over her. Mm. Yeah. Edith's anger toward men <laughs> clearly has a massive influence over the film and it's and it's finale. Um, and like, I'm going to say it right now because this comes into play a few times. If anyone is really the villain here behind everything i would say it's her and uh, the way she kind of manipulates at least marion and enforces her to kind of have to create this alter ident alternate identity as we come to find because i mean that's basically what happens it's all to kind of appease her mother and keep her mother at bay um and so i really think that edith is without even knowing it the the, the real yeah. villain behind everything going on but it makes for a very interesting character study. I mean, if you sit down and you look at, at either of these women and then you look at them together, and then you look at the outcome too, but I mean you I could I could watch a movie just about these two without the other girls, <laughs> to be honest. And it is Grey Gardens. But but <laughs> but um but I mean honestly, it's pretty fascinating. I'm I these were the moments of the movie that I enjoyed the most were these these moments of this family oh, yeah. kind of just imploding on each other, you know? So there's a point then when Marion does get up the, out of the table to like go take dishes or something into the kitchen. And again, Edith is like, Marion, what are you doing? Why are you taking so long? Do you have one of your men in there? It's like she this this old bitch really thinks Marion has just men lined up waiting for her. <laughs> this leads into a sequence that I, I find some of these moments interesting because you get all these really heavy dialogue scenes i mean talking 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 and then all of a sudden you'll have like several scenes that are completely void of dialogue and silent and this is one of them it's this piano sequence where the girls are like sitting on the carpet making it like playing with a puzzle and you kind of you get the sense that they're being watched but this scene goes on for quite a while and it's a nice refresher after you know hearing these two girls try to you know Fain acting. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it, it's strange. It's weird. Like, they, they, they let these scenes linger for so long. Whether it be dialogue-based <laughs> or otherwise, They a lot of times it feels like they could have really mm. trimmed this movie down. But then it would have just been a short at that point. Yeah, because the film is only 80 minutes long. It's less than 80 minutes long. So if they cut anything out, I, I feel like, yeah, it would have been a short film. <laughs> But uh, yeah, as they're as they're in this room and and Marion's playing the piano and the girls are playing this puzzle or dominoes or whatever it is, there's like this ominous music, and we do get the sense that someone is watching them. Like we see him, we hear him breathing. He comes up to the window and looks in. Yeah, it's just 
I like the score. I do like the score. The room's pretty. The room is pretty. It's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's visually very nice. Yes. Troy, I will say this is when we recreate this sequence for our, um, this film for our calendar photo shoot. <laughs> this is the scene. I want to be at the piano and I want you to be in the wheelchair beside me. Uh, and, that's, and that will be our image for Unhinged. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> but yeah. Can I be on the floor uh, yes. pl- making the puzzle? <laughs> with, a very, yeah. with a very dramatic eyeshadow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> um, and I don't necessarily have an issue. I will say this. These moments where they let the film breathe and kind of just take its time. Again, in some in some ways, it, it does the film a favor. It's not really a bad thing. It's just a, a very unique way of pacing the film. It's different from most other films and it does kind of give this piece its own identity it moves at a pace all of its own a snail's pace it really feels like like more of like a a drama mystery than anything for the most part until it takes a turn as being a slasher towards the very end of the movie um but it, it kind of works in its favor i feel yeah because think about it this was 1982 this was like the the pinnacle point of the slasher craze and you know think about slasher films what were they concerned about at this point it was body count like every slasher film that was being released was trying to up the body count of the one that just came before it this film has a very small body count i mean there's three 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 deaths in this in this film and they're spread out like very you know they're they're actually four oh okay there's four. Oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i'm forgetting the stupid car okay yeah yeah we'll get there yeah, <laughs> but still, I mean, but still, even that. With that being said, like this movie definitely was not. This film is not about gore and and violence. It's about slowly unraveling exactly what's going on within this lavish mansion, um, <laughs> and it takes its time with it. It does, and I feel like yeah, I feel like people that hate this movie because this movie has gotten a lot of hate. Uh, I feel like people that dislike this movie. Uh, I don't know. I, I I think the pacing probably has a lot to do with it. They are used to like the Friday the Thirteenth, the burnings, the you know sleepaway mm-hmm. camps that came out during the same time that were all about the body count and how each death could be gorier and more graphic than the one that came before it. And this film does the complete opposite. It's really telling a story, and you know I appreciate that. Could the te- some of the technical aspects of it be much better? Of course, of course. But if you sit down and just watch this movie and listen to the dialogue, it's really like you're putting a puzzle together. Mm-hmm. And it does come together at the end, whether you're satisfied with how it comes together at the end or not. It does come together at the end. And you cannot say that the film you know, doesn't give you you know, an explanation for why everything is happening or happened the way it does, because it does. And you just have to pay attention. And I get it. I get it. Some people don't have that attention span. They want the constant, (laughs) you know, and this film doesn't give it to you. And I don't think that it really was concerned with giving it to you. It was concerned with telling a story. I agree. I do. And, and I, and I think that's in its favor and uh, it's, it's something that, causes this film to stand apart from many other films that would fall within the same genre. So like 90% of the film, it's raining out. We cut to the scene with Nancy and Terry in bed. Yeah. Oh, this scene. 
Ugh. Pack a lunch, guys. <laughs> this is a long scene. It's a long scene, and it's excruciating to watch because yeah. both of these actresses are horrible. And I hate to keep saying that. I really do. But come on. This is the best they could find. Like, really? Did they do auditions? Did he do auditions? Or did he just, like, look at pictures and be like, oh, these two are pretty? He went and saw the local community theater production of Annie, and he said... <laughs> The girl that played Grace and chorus girl number seven, those are my leads. <laughs> because, God, not only, I mean, it's it's really <laughs> distracting to watch them act against the actresses that play Marion and uh, Edith because you can really tell that they're terrible when acting next to people that are actually competent actors. But when you have two terrible actors trying to act off of each other and they're just not giving each other any cues, any, any, any reactions. It is like literally dialogue being read off of a cue card. It's like Nancy's first line is, I don't know why that Marion sticks around. And man, that rich bitch is starting to get to me. (laughs) And then I think they maybe were reading cue cards because sometimes I noticed their eyes were like, going to the side and like they tried to cut around it sometimes. So I think they maybe were. <laughs> she must be waiting for that old lady just to die, man. I don't know why she just doesn't leave. It's all delivered like that. Then, <laughs> then mm-hmm. Terry gets out of bed. Oh, the best moment. <laughs> and she steps on something and she's like, ow. And then she like hops around in a circle on one foot, like for, <laughs> and she picks it up. And <laughs> she's like, oh, what's that? And she shows it to, um, what, what the fuck's her name? Nancy. Nancy. And Nancy's like, oh, that's weird. It's a tooth. It's a, it's a fucking tooth from somebody's <laughs> mouth. And these two are acting like they just found like a fucking <laughs> dead body. <laughs> no, they're not even acting like that. They're acting like they just found like a, a, a piece of a monopoly board or something mm-hmm. they, they are not concerned <laughs> that they just found a human tooth on the floor oh that's weird where did that come from it came from somebody's <laughs> fucking mouth so maybe you should get your ass out of the house <laughs> this is one of those moments that i was mentioning earlier that like you never come back to it i mean you know at the end you know this tooth is from somebody else and like there's a moment towards the finale where you see that there is the potential for far more bodies than ever expected when some something is stumbled upon when we get to it. Um, but you know what? For this being a moment that doesn't get a lot of like explanation or they really don't investigate it further, I also kind of appreciate like the simplicity of it. Like, you know, she throws it at Nancy and Nancy's like, ah, like, you know, and that, uh, that's all she does. But like, you know, they don't revisit it and like, they are living with an old woman. I'm assuming that woman is losing teeth by the day. Maybe maybe, maybe she's just falling apart at the scene. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I'm not saying I wouldn't be more shocked by it, but if I was in somebody's house that I was not used to, I was staying in their bedroom because they were politely welcoming me, and I stepped on a tooth, would I be disgusted and creeped out? Yes. But, like, would I investigate further out of respect for this old woman's home? I don't 
think so. I would just be like, oh. And Roger, that's why you would be murdered and I would be the survivor because my ass would have been out of that house in a second. Right. It's a tooth for crying out loud. You just had you just had an uncomfortable dinner with these two old broads. You know they're nuts, and now you're finding teeth laying around their house. No, I'm out of there. And I do like there's a line where where uh, Nancy's like. God, listening to that mother and daughter for over 20 minutes, that would kill me. And I'm like, we know because listening to you two talk for five fucking minutes is killing me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, This leads into a sequence where. um, Oh, God. (laughs) Where you've got Terry sleeping and she wakes up and it's a very. You get a few moments Mm -hmm. in this movie that are very dark. Like, extremely dark. Like, hard to see what's going on. And I'm sure with, like, I don't know, a 4K restoration, maybe would do it some favors. Maybe not. But, um... But I I don't totally hate that aspect of it. It leaves for a lot of mystery. Um, and a lot of guessing, like, what exactly is going on. Because yeah. she ends up going and peeking out the window. And there's this moment where she's, like you know she's looking outside and you as the viewer you're like what the fuck is she looking at you could see like that a figure is moving across the path but it's very very muddy very dark and all of a sudden this light turns on at the shed across the field and they give a really great sound cue and they it, it lets them really play with the um the score a lot in these moments and i actually ended up thinking this is for being a visually difficult scene to watch was i still found it rather uh, effective um uh, pretty striking in its own way. Um, again, their their usage of score at times is really what saves these. I moments. think the score is one of the best things about the film. I mean, it it, it tries its hardest to create some sort of atmosphere um, with what's going on. So I, I really do appreciate the score. It's the typical like eighties synth score, but it's like very frantic. So it fits what's going on with the film very well. I actually really like the score. Like I said, I think the score is one of the best. Um, parts of the film but this is when terry gets back into bed right and she proceeds to hear this heavy male breathing and we're not just talking about like (sighs) we're talking about somebody obviously masturbating themselves to climax this person is not this guy is not just masturbating there is like there's got to be anal stimulation involved or something like we're talking like (sighs) 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 like i mean i'm not trying to get graphic about my masturbation but it's normally just like silence and they're like uh like (laughs) this fucker (laughs) like i mean he's going to pound pound on himself i uh like it's intense he's using some kind of a some kind of a three-pronged dildo or something i don't know because it is the most passionate yeah. masturbation sequence I've ever heard. It was very, it was very erotic, and I'm like, I would love to see the behind the scenes footage of like their ADR session. <laughs> just a guy up against the mic, just like, oh, oh yeah, uh, yeah. It, I'm sure it was very not sexy. Recording. But I mean, you get you get a point where the person obviously climaxes. Yeah, and then after they climax, they're like whimpering, like they're ashamed. They're like, ooh. And it's like, but how is it so loud? Like, where is he doing this from? He's doing it to like a, a megaphone. <laughs> well, that's the thing is like, she hears it in the room. And then you see this whole sequence of her walking through the house, then up the stairs. I'm like, so this person's that loud that you could hear it all the way the other end of the house. I'm like, <laughs> the house is like trembling with it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's very intense. It must've been a great orgasm. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's super dark, but she does go wake up Nancy to tell her that, hey, she just heard a guy. And Nancy's response is, a guy? What are you talking about? And Terry's like, we need to, Terry. Okay. I will give it to Terry now because Terry is getting smart. Nancy's the Roger. Terry's the Troy. Nancy just wants to go back to bed <laughs> and ignore everything. And Terry's like, I want to get the, f- I'm the pretty one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Terry's like, we need to get the hell out of here. But then they do something really stupid where they're like, we got to walk through the woods. Who's going to go? Oh, let's flip a coin. <laughs> what? I mean, I guess it's like neither of them want to fucking do it. You know what I think is really stupid is they're like, we got to get out of here right away. Cut to them both naked <laughs> in the shower. <laughs> like, they're scared and they got to leave, but they, they are not scared enough to avoid showering. Together. together. They're just standing there full bush, like admiring each other, just like planning the day. <laughs> I was like, wait, I thought you guys were like making a run for it, but it's like not that. I don't big know. Is this something apparently. straight women do together? Do they just shower <laughs> in the in a little enclosed shower? Day? I try. I try to shower with other men, but then they just get uncomfortable. So I don't know. (laughs) Women operate differently. This is a fucking mansion. Are you trying to tell me there's only one shower in the entire place that they couldn't have? Yeah, but after they heard that guy jacking himself off, they're nervous. Yeah, maybe they're scared. So they're like, oh, we're safer in numbers. Let's wash each other. (laughs) (laughs) But guess what? He's still still watching him and jacking himself off because there's a scene of him looking at him through the fucking people. This is the moment I referenced earlier. Another thing that's never really addressed in my my opinion, Mm. because I really don't know whose eye this is. I mean, at the end of the movie, they don't say is the eye, is it? The one characters or the others. There's yeah. two characters who it could be. And they both have different, unique, and interesting motivations as to why. But they don't ever really tie up those loose ends, which I kind of like. I really don't have an issue with it. But I'm really just more just scratching my head thinking, like, is it the brother? Or is it, you know? Um, but we'll get to it. We'll get to it. It was Edith. It was Edith. <laughs> she, she wheels up and she's like, yes, yes. That's the old family. They, their offspring is divine. <laughs> but um, this does cut to another sequence with Marion where basically the girls inform Marion that they're going to be leaving. That that Nan, Nancy, my aunt's name is Nancy and I call her Nanorama. And I keep wanting <laughs> to say Nanorama. Uh, but Nancy is going to go. And if ever there's a scene that Nancy in this movie just bombs it's this scene like if if she's absolutely reading off a cue card she looks terrified i'm convinced this is this oh was her God. first day on set she'd never <laughs> done anything before but thank god they lit her for the gods she looks yeah beautiful she has a silk screen on her she's glowing uh-huh a halo of light around her beautiful hair but she looks horrified <laughs> like she does she does not want to be there she's like i didn't sign up for this movie uh the, the poor thing <laughs> Uh, which oh is this when um she's they're talking to marion and telling marion that nancy's gonna be the one that goes to walk to town. yeah and and let's we have to clarify M- marion gives very detailed directions oh yeah where nancy needs to go exactly she's like you see those two trees you got to go down between those two trees and then take a right and then you'll see uh, you'll see a a, a a landing and you go through there and then you, she's getting very detailed in it. but then at the very end she's like but i don't think you should really go and Nancy's like, well, no, I'm going. So Nancy hikes out of there. Marion asks Terry to go get some firewood. Terry goes outside. It's a beautiful day out, even though 
half the movie it's a monsoon as roger pointed out now it's beautiful <laughs> there's no not a drop of no water there's to it's be seen. dry she heads over to a she she's getting some firewood and then she sees that creepy ass what is it a shed a shed yeah yeah, it's yeah like a, a huge shed, shed. Yeah. huge shed she goes over to it before she can get in it marion comes running out like charging at <laughs> i fucking love <laughs> charging i love the shot <laughs> <laughs> like a fucking linebacker sprinting at her. It's <laughs> He's like, you can't go in there. It's dangerous. The floorboards are will cave in on you. That would be my first cue to be like, okay, I guess I really should leave now. <laughs> what that woman yeah. maniacally running at you, screaming your name? Yeah, same. At that point, the tooth didn't do yeah. it, but that What's sure in the fucking shed? did. <laughs> the rest of the teeth, <laughs> right? Um, I do like this whole little sequence with the shed. I do want to point out that Terry never gets the fucking firewood. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so what was the point of going outside to begin with, Terry? But, um, but yeah, it's this brief little moment. Definitely foreboding. Definitely comes back into play later. Um, meanwhile, Nancy is waddling through the woods in a sensible white coat. <laughs> of course, we get a little bit of uh, like some nice footage, but it's. I mean, she reaches. She gets to the the street pretty fast. I mean, mm-hmm. it sure seems like she gets there pretty quick. Yeah, for as um, treacherous and as long as they told her this hike was going to be, well, she sure. Uh, yeah, but the treacherous aspect is certainly not the woods. We learn this does lead into if like if if there's any scene in this movie that I would call quote unquote iconic, and I use that term loosely. <laughs> um, it is this sequence. I have seen this sequence time and time again. This is what I associated with the film, knowing we were leading into it. And and it is a fine sequence. Um, for being, at this point, 40 minutes into the movie and not having received a single droplet of blood or anything other than a motherfucking tooth, um, <laughs> I really was hoping for something a bit more. Um, but I'll take it, all mm-hmm. things considered. Um, it's edited very weird. So it doesn't pack the punch that I think it could have. Mm-hmm. Because basically she comes to a clearing. She crawls up this embankment. She comes to this clearing. And standing right there is this like hooded figure holding a giant scythe. And I don't know about you guys. Where the fuck did he get it? But those (laughs) things have... Very Grim Reaper. Very Grim Reaper. (laughs) And in fact, if you look at the poster of the film, not the the one that made the DVD cover, which is a shot of dead Nancy, but the one that was like the theatrical poster, it's like a Grim Reaper holding a scythe. Mm. I've always thought scythes were really creepy. I don't know why. Maybe it is the Grim Reaper aspect, but she tries to stand up and this thing like literally like swings it and slices her with it. And it starts like cutting the fuck out of her. And you do get a, a cut of her holding on to the blade. And I always hate scenes like that. Like that just bothers me because if you think about the fact that you're being like stabbed to death and you're trying to grab the knife and. Ugh, ugh, I know. Oh my God. My yeah. hands. Oh yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but that's all you really get from it. Like, you get the really cool shot of the hands, which does make my asshole clench. Mm-hmm. But, like, other than that, it's then she just, like, drops, she bleeds, and she's dead. And, um, yeah, I think that was my my issue with it, Troy, is the fact that, like, this could have been... You, got, you only got so many characters in this movie. It's not like you have a clan of 32 people like some of these other slashers. This is three girls, one of which is non-existent for the majority of the film. You better give us like some good kills, my God! Like, and this really just 
It was it was too quick. It felt wasted. But it's still it's, it's a moment. It works. It's like a six point five out of ten of a kill. If we're gonna rate it, I don't know why I'm rating it, but like that's where it sits with me. <laughs> I guess yeah. I just feel like yeah, the editing on this was really odd. So it doesn't come off as being as, as as effective as it could have been. Although there is a shot of her hitting the ground and blood squirts out of her mouth. And we do get her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's a spit. Well, all of them are. Apparently. Yeah, she's a spitter, everyone. And we hate a spitter. Mm. We hate a spitter. Um, and I will say for being a rather weak actress, at least the moment where she like goes to stand up and she's like, oh, my God. She had like she. That was she was good. She's pretty good. I mean, like. Yeah, I'll take it I'll, from this girl. Well, in order to get that performance from her, they probably didn't tell her what was about to happen. We're really killing you. They're like, we know that <laughs> we, this bitch can't act. So we're, we're just going right. to put this like figure with a scythe at the end of the thing. So she sees it and actually gets some sort of realistic reaction. Uh, so back at the house, Terry and Marion are chatting. And I love this scene because Terry has this blank expression on her face the entire conversation. It is the literally the same blank expression the entire time. Marion <laughs> says that Nancy should not have left because the woods are confusing. Mm. That's a that's after a, that very detailed direction. Yes, after this <laughs> and confusing is an interesting word to use because I think you are the confused one, Marion. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but um, and then we hear that you know Marion starts to like kind of confide in Terry, and I do like the fact that. One thing I do like about the film is that there is like this hint of this bond growing between Marion and Terry, yeah. which yeah. makes the ending that much more like, ooh, uh, terrifying or horrible because Marion starts to tell Terry her mother's not right. And she goes into this story about why the family now is the way it is. Apparently, Marion's father, who is a very wealthy man, Obviously, they lived in, um, well, we find out they lived in Rhode Island before they moved to this place. He apparently molested a little girl and was caught. And this little girl was only eight or nine years Mm -hmm. old. And he was put in an institution and she hasn't seen him since. So she assumes he's still there. And she proceeds to tell Terry how much this ruined her family, tore their family apart. And... Edith's contempt for men has just grown and grown and grown because of now her life basically was, was ruined. All of the stuff that she used to be able to do is like this rich socialite has gone, is gone. So she just has this huge contempt with men to the point where you can't even mention a man to her period without her freaking out. Yeah. Which is funny. Cause like they say that, but then she always Uses, talks about Marion's men and seems a little chill. Does Marion and your men? She doesn't like freak out as much. You know what I mean? For someone that hates m- the word men and yeah, men. Yeah, she basically just uses that as an excuse to call Marion a slut. Yeah. <laughs> like for her, like it's interesting that she supposedly hates men, but then when she is uh, uh, confronting Marion about it, it's not the fact that the men, mm. it's not the men that she hates, it's the fact that her daughter is being a slut. Yeah. And Terry does tell her about hearing a man last night moaning. And of course, Marion says it's nonsense and that your accident must be affecting you more than you thought, Terry, because there is certainly no men here. Mother would not allow it. This is this for the first time that we get a moment from Marion. Well, that's basically it's, it's like a one take monologue. 
And honestly, I feel this is pretty phenomenal. I think this sequence, I don't mind that it's one take. She's pretty flawless with it. I think up to this point, it's the best acting in the film. Um, it's almost Shakespearean in her delivery. There's such an elegance to how she speaks. Um, and I think the, the element of what we're speaking about with the mother, it's not, you know, the hatred towards men is one thing, but I think what she expresses towards Marion, it's, it's shame. There's this huge layer of shame and guilt that she constantly smothers Marion with. And it, it obviously, I mean, in more ways than one, once we get to the ending, but it obviously has this extreme impact on Marion. And Marion, this is the first time when she's talking to Terry about this, is, is, is really kind of starting to shed the layers of her onion and just explain how miserable her life, her existence has been with her mother. And it makes for, like I said earlier, a very interesting character study. Um, it's very sad. And this is the first of two big moments that she really shares a lot with Terry. And, you know, when we get to the ending and really talk about what happens, we're going to talk about how people have issues with it. And we're going to talk about why it's so taboo. But they make sure to make this character extremely sympathetic, extremely tragic, and uh, rather, rather tortured. And the fact that they took the time to mold this character to be by far the most intriguing and invest uh, the character I invest in the most out of everybody in this film. There's a reason for that. Yeah. And she's very likable and she's very likable. You know, you like, you likeable care for her. And you f yeah. You feel for her. There's, there's a layer of sadness that you feel for her. And, um, that's not something you can just kind of brush away. There's a, there's a purpose for that. In mm -hmm. the story. I mean, she's abused. Her mother is blatantly abusive to her and she is, and you think about this, she's trapped in this large isolated house with only one person. And this one person treats her horribly, you know, I mean, and, it, and it's apparent by this very next scene where, you know, Marion is screaming at her or Edith is screaming at Marion because she's ready to come to dinner. Right. She's like, Marion, I'm ready to come to dinner. Where are you? And then she's like, when Marion goes to get her, she's like, just rips her about being about punctuality. Punctuality is the one thing that I expect my child to give me. I need some sort. And it's just like, God damn, this girl can't, this, this woman can't do anything right. You know? So they take her to dinner. We have another dinner scene where Edith asks Terry about where Nancy is. And Nancy, uh, Terry tells her that Nancy went into the woods and Edith's like, well, I don't really think that was a good idea. And Terry's like, well, we needed to tell our families about where we're at. And, you know, it, Obviously, Terry catches on that Edith isn't really pleased with this decision, so they just start eating. And this is when we get another trance. Uh, Edith goes into this trance looking at these damn whatever they are. Shot glasses, I don't know. Cups, salt and pepper shakers. And this is never explained. It's never explained. Like if I had one if I had one thing I wanted to have explained about this film, it would be why these fucking things cause her to go into a trance the only thing i could really assume and this is going out on a limb but i'm trying to piece together other little tidbits that are, that are handed to us as the viewer over the course of the movie i'm assuming you're right they're either they're they could be salt and pepper shakers or they, they look like they could almost be like little like children's cups and there's two of them there's two and 
there is another figure that's yet to really be introduced. We've seen this character only at a few points in the movie when Terry has been peering outside. She sees this hooded figure. And then, of course, there's the kill scene with Nancy. But um, it's it's implied that there's another person on the property. And uh, the mother is very much at this point, she's not, like, totally with it. Um, I think Marion Marion puts on that she's... Um, a little more senile than she actually is. The whole thing with the men's voice is actually, you know, she tries to pass it off that she's hearing things. She's not hearing things we learn. You know, she's not. But there's definitely something going on with her mental state, her overall well-being. And I wonder if she's forgotten about this specific character and, you know, the fact that there is somebody else in her life. And she has this moment where she sees these two key items. Two, there's a two for a reason. I wonder if she's associating this with what ends up being her, I'll just say it, her two children. There is another child, you know. Just to make the point clear, there's another child. Uh, Marion is one of two. And we, we do explore that more as the film goes on. I wonder if this is a very subtle, very vague hint towards that. I mean, I think that makes, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I can't think of anything else that would be. It's just not it's just not clearly explained. That's possible, yeah. Terry finally breaks the awkwardness of this mother like convulsing over these two, you know, pieces of dining ware and she asks if they came from a large family. And then this is when Edith launches into like this spiel about parenthood being a, a burden and then rips into marrying again about bringing men into the house. And this is when Marion actually really stands up to her mother for, you know, and tells her she will not allow her mother to keep talking to her like this. And mother's like, oh, you have no capacity to allow me to do anything because I run this house. And of course, they're just like, you know, poor Terry's just sitting there witnessing this. Like her dinners with these two have been nothing but like traumatic. I was really needing Marion to chuck her mother down the fucking staircase at this point. Like this mother is just wretched. And I really was needing some form of a comeuppance because she just is awful. She's awful, awful to her. It's, it's so sad and abusive. It is, it's so abusive. And and Terry, she can't do much, but God, she can glare. And all she does, she just sits there and glares with those heavily eyeshadowed lids, just staring uncomfortably. But I mean, I would do the same. I'd be like, what the fuck do I do? So yeah, yeah, we have that. This whole moment is just very uncomfortable. And then it leads into another fucking jack-off sequence. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It does. Terry's in bed that night, and here's the heavy breathing again. <sighs> it is. Someone's very erotic. <laughs> I'm like. I kind of was like oddly turned on. I was like, I don't know. They're committing. Like, I respect someone that's they committing. Are. I was like looking around, making sure nobody could hear. The children in the library. <laughs> what the like, hell? Mr. <laughs> is watching pornography. No, um, yeah, no. I'm like, I haven't fucking gotten off like that since my twenties. Jesus, who the f- this guy is really enjoying himself. Good for him. Good for him. Right. But this, I mean, it does get Terry to. Uh, spring from her bed and kind of start exploring the house trying to identify this earth-shaking orgasm that's taking place <laughs> but um and he's leads her to the attic and um this is an interesting <laughs> scene 
because she finds a few things. First of all, she finds an array of children's items. She finds a little chair, mm. a tiny chair, a <laughs> box of little trinkets. Um, and she also finds a machete and a, a gun. So thank God that's just up there with the kid <laughs> shit. But um, And she also finds a photo of what appears to be two young boys foreshadowing. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Never addresses the photo again. Definitely our job to piece this together as to how this could tie into the story. But it is definitely two boys. Um, and I, I do want to say she's she's like ascending the staircase and this orgasm is just mounting, like roaring through the house. And as soon as she gets to the landing, it stops. I'm like, listen, if that were me and I was in the midst of that, like <laughs> close to nutting, because this guy's got to be, how could he, uh, this poor guy must be blue balling. Like he's so pissed off right now. He's like this fucking bitch. Uh, because <laughs> that orgasm was something to <laughs> behold. <laughs> Oh yeah, it because, I'm not stopping. It's at like that, that scene point. in Scary Movie where she gets blasted against the ceiling, like <laughs> Terry just gets launched by a wave of semen. Uh, <laughs> it made the movie so much more entertaining. <laughs> she basically goes back to her room. She hears a knocking noise. She looks out her window, and right away there's this creepy man staring at her. Like this, I he's creepy as fuck. Out of my seat. I was not expecting this. Yeah, I did. No, she literally pulls mm-hmm. the curtain. His face is like right there. And this girl may not be able to act, but you know what? I'll give her this. The broad can scream. She launches into a tirade of just screaming her lungs out, runs down the staircase. And I I really like this moment. It's one of the few moments I think that her acting is not awful. She runs into Marion and Marion's like, oh, what's wrong? <laughs> and, and she's like, there's a man in my window. And and Marion's like, there's a, no, a man, there's no man. Yeah. There's no man on the premises. You just, you, you know, you just must be shaken up. <laughs> and she's like, oh, Marion, cut the crap. And I was like, yes, Terry, tell her how the fuck it is. Like, she delivered that line pretty well, I got to say. I mean, it's rare yeah. for her, but I like that. <laughs> Carb, start <laughs> etching her name in the Oscar now. <laughs> <laughs> and the yeah. award goes to. <laughs> but this is. This is another. This is a scene that is actually really sad. Like this whole story. This is another, and this is uh, this film. Just this. Is, it kind of breaks my heart when I think about this, because I feel like Marion has finally found somebody that she can confide in, that she feels comfortable with. This is like now the third bonding moment that these two have had together, right? Like very sincere bonding, and and and. Marion tells her about who this guy is. And it turns out it's her younger brother or it's her older brother, sorry, Carl. And he is not mentally stable. He has the mind of a five-year-old. And because of the mother, Edith's hatred for men, she has disowned him. And she wants nothing to do with him. She forgets that he even exists. She pretends he doesn't even exist. So, what Marion has proceeded to do is take care of him. She feeds him. She, she takes care of him, but he can't live in the house because of mother. So basically she, he lives in the woods. He lives outside. And I mean, just think about that. That's just really dark and disturbing that you have a, you know, a mother won't even, you know, I, this child can't even right. come into the house. And I thought her delivery was actually very heartfelt. Like 
you felt the emotion while she's telling uh terry about the who he is and i was like is that i don't know like it got uh i remember the first time i watched it and rewatching it again after all these years like it kind of gets you a little misty-eyed like because she's i don't know it's a sad story yeah and i think i mean again going off of what i said with like the first monologue i think because of the material addressing gender in in general there's a lot of individuals who are quick to jump on the hate bandwagon because it just chose to go there in gen- period. Yeah. However, this movie isn't going blind through the dark. It knows its its story and its purpose and the reasons why. And honestly, this individual is is not as we come to find out a transgender individual. This is somebody who is forced to live a life against their wishes because of a very tormented and misguided parental figure as we're you know as we're starting to learn here and Mm. if people are going to sit and criticize the film for that reason they need to get their story straight in my opinion yeah you can't sit there and say that's not trans this is anti-trans no this character is never not claiming to be trans this character is fully aware of who they are this character it has been abused into a position where they are having to live an alternate lifestyle. That is a different scenario, and that would fuck somebody up completely. So, I I, I can't even categorize it within uh, uh, anti-trans because that's not what they're trying to say. This person doesn't, I think, in my mind, identify the way that it's you know that, that they're turning out to be a female i mean i'm not to give away the ending i'm trying to dance around my words but like if we're going to go there eventually we're going to have to go there a certain character we find out is not exactly who they seem but it's not by their own choice at least what i'm gathering it's because they have no choice and yes that's cruel yes that's awful Yes, that's why I think the mother is at the end of this, the villain in this movie, because of what she's subjecting her children to. But there are abusive parents out there who have done batshit crazy shit to their kids. And unfortunately, this old woman who lives in the middle of this mansion, in the middle of this forest, likely isn't, with no telephone, probably doesn't have the property, the proper authorities showing up, checking on the kids, making sure they're not being forced to masquerade as the alternate gender. Like, I mean, it's going to cause a, it's going to cause mental instability. This is not an anti-trans film. It's not even touching. No, I agree. I agree. 100%. Sorry. It, it, it's same it's the same situation with like sleepaway camp where you have a character that was forced into a specific gender. And, you know, people today still, there's a whole sector of, of the community that wants to shame Sleepaway Camp and call it transphobic, which we had our episode on that, you know, several episodes back, Roger, where we all, both, all three of us agreed because we had a guest on that the film was not transphobic. That's, that was not the point of the film. And it, it's the same thing with this film. And in fact, this film, this particular character is honestly... I mean, I know you said they really feel like they don't have a choice, but I feel like in this film, this character is making a choice, but it's the, it's a choice that they feel it's the only one they have to be able to live a survive, yeah, survive or live a comfortable lifestyle, right? Angela and Sleepaway Camp did not have a choice. 
you know, and I'm not saying I, I hate to use that word because then it's people are going to say, oh, well, you, you are you trying to say being trans is a choice or being gay is a choice? No, absolutely not. But we're talking about the context of these films. Okay. And the characters, Angela and Sleepaway Camp had no choice. You know, her aunt Martha forced that upon her. In this film, the character is making a choice because she feels like she, there's no other option, right? In order to live a, a, a lifestyle and be taken care of by a parent. Right. Well, and to be clear, Sleepaway Camp is, is an example of gender dysphoria. Sleepaway Camp is a child who is forced to to believe they are a young girl from from an early age convinced of that into their you know mature as they start maturing and then they start to feel the things and realize the things that come with hitting puberty and it's you know it's not the, the same things that a young girl would feel that is its own thing you know this as you said this is a character who is already tormented by their parent who believes this character to be a female because this character knows that if this if they had to live as a male them it would be significantly worse is my what i'm gathering after what the father did and the hate that the mother holds for men you hear it in her dialogue she loathes men she won't allow men in her home and the character of marion has to take care of this mother because she's ill so she just suffers through it and she's learned to adopt this female alter ego because it's the lesser of two evils it's very sad it's very sad it's very elaborate i mean this story it is it is it is mm -hmm. i can't it's not a simple plot but it's very thought out it is very very specific you've got to follow the story yeah, and let's just get there because we're we're fastly approaching the ending. I, f I feel like once this film hits a certain point, the ending comes at a fast pace, which is unlike the rest of the film. The film is such slowly paced until you get to until you get to this certain point, and then the film just picks up speed. And the ending is actually, I think, the ending comes really abruptly. Marion tells Terry about her brother, says, but he would not hurt anybody. Don't worry about mm. that. The next day. Um, she's out, she's reading in the parlor and she hears knock. So she goes outside to look around and we, we get introduced to, well, we, we see him again. We've been introduced to him already, but it's Norman, right? The guy from the beginning and he's chopping wood and, and, and Terry asks him what it's like working with Marion and the, the mother. And he basically said he, he never gets to talk to the mother that he, all of his dealings are with Marion. Uh, and Terry's like, well, she is really mean to Mary and he's like yeah I've heard but what they do is their business I don't I, I'm just here to get paid I don't really care about you know I'm not going to concern myself and then he does tell her you know your friend probably shouldn't have went out in the woods by herself because some unexplained things have been happening and he tells her about all the young girls that have been disappearing and then it cuts and that's all Norman has to do in this film yep. there's nothing else there's no other He's like a little bookend. He's not even that. <laughs> yeah, he's not even that strong of a red herring. If you think about it, if he was going to be a red herring, I think he would have popped up a few more times. Um, so, so I was just like, what is this character's purpose? But it's another enthralling and energetic conversation between two star actors, masters of their craft, if you will. <laughs> I mean, it's literally just like it cuts back and forth between the two, the two of them, like blandly conversing with each other. I was like, ooh. 
God, this guy, <laughs> like, he ain't adding much to the mix. But yeah, um, he, you know what it is, I think, about his character, like, I could see him being a red herring if he, like, seemed to care more. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, he seems so uninvested in everything. He's like, yeah, I just come and I do the work around the property. And that's yeah. all. I'm a handyman. And I'm like, okay, this guy doesn't fucking want to be here. He doesn't even want to talk to this girl. Like, <laughs> so they don't do a very good job of adding any suspense to his presence. And I, I have the same note, Troy. I think also because if they didn't show the shot of Carl by her, Terry's window they could have still kind of played Norman as the Red Herring, because then we have already seen that the Red Herring is so the person watching is someone else. So we already know it's not Norman a little early. Yeah, yeah, that's fair, because it's pretty quickly deduced that um, that the brother Carl has a very specific look. Like, he's, yeah. very, he's a woodsman. He's got a full beard, and he's definitely not Norman. Very lumbersexual. Very lumbersexual. He looks like yes. that guy from the old caveman Geico commercials. Remember him? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, that's the that's the aesthetic we're getting. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, poor Gloria finally resurfaces. <laughs> I wrote down at 67 minutes is when she makes her grand return. I, I, I marked that. <laughs> she gets to shine. With a band-aid on her head, really beased and bruised and beaten. Um, I have to say, if this girl was that injured, who, who, whose business is it, is it of this family to assume that she's okay just to be on bed rest in their home? I'd be like, get a f airlifter. Airlift her out of here. Like, this girl has to be horribly bruised if she can't walk for two fucking days. Yeah. Yeah. But she, <laughs> I mean, at least she gets a couple of fucking lines. Barely. Yeah. They, and they didn't even like, she didn't even get, I'm curious if she had a full scene and it was just so bad that they're like, let's just cut to the eye, drown out the rest of the audio. And then we <laughs> cut to the death. <laughs> yeah. She gets the short end of the stick. Yeah. Cause mm -hmm. the cut is really awkward. Yeah. Yeah. The cut to her death is really awkward because they're sitting there talking. It's broad daylight. And Terry's like, Gloria, I'm so worried about what's... And, and Gloria's like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's creepy here, sure. But they've been taking care of me. And then we see a shot of the weird eye, right? And then all of a sudden it cuts and it's like pitch black out. She's in a room. It's like nighttime now. She's in bed and this figure comes in heavily breathing. <gasps> And hatches her in the face while she's sleeping. I actually thought I really liked it. And I liked the clenching of the, the her her body was still clenching the bed frame after she's like uh, axe in the head. Like I don't know. I thought it was a little effective. But this poor girl, like, yeah, like literally, like, give us a goddamn, give us one more shot of that fucking house. We know you got it. Like yeah. something to transition. <laughs> but no, we don't even get that. Like all of a sudden, she's just passed out in the bed. All this girl does is sleep the whole fucking movie. She's got maybe four lines, and then she's yeah, she's axed. Um, they did a pretty good job with it. And like then they, there's this cool shot. The axe hits the head. Her eyes are open now. Mm -hmm. And you see, like, you see the axe in her head, and it starts to back away. And it's this very cool shot of her dead body just laying there. Um, I enjoyed the kill. I wish the character would have had more. Um, but To it, do. You know, at least we didn't have to hear her act. <laughs> no, and Terry wakes up and goes to Gloria's room. Somehow, though, it's all clean now. The bed's made. The room's clean. Gloria's nowhere to be seen. She goes downstairs and um, asks Gloria... 
or asks Marion if she's seen Gloria. And Marion's like, no, maybe she went outside for some fresh air. So Terry goes out to look for her. She goes to the shed. And as she's getting ready to go into it, all of a sudden, Carl runs towards her, right? And she goes into the shed, which is unlocked, apparently. They keep the shed unlocked, which is interesting considering what's in there. And for someone that's supposed to be so harmless, you know, because Marion assured Terry that, that Carl was harmless and he didn't want to hurt anybody, he fucking busts his hand through the window of the shed to grab her by the hair and try to yank her out the window. I'm like... Uh, yeah, this doesn't seem harmless to me, but this is a, a very cool sequence that starts to unfold. But I think it's an, I, it's you said earlier in the film, Troy, Troy, you literally had a few points of the DVD where you were curious if there was like a glitch <laughs> or an <laughs> editing issue. And they do something mm. with the audio <laughs> yeah. that I think really drowns out what could have been a very cool sequence especially like a startling sequence with this window bust they they basically have everything go silent aside from this kind of weird kind of trippy underscore that comes up so you know there's still sound there but it almost seems like they forgot to put a sound effect in because there's no audio for the breaking glass you don't really hear her screaming uh and it cuts into this almost like this weird like strobe like it's like almost like a, a a frame rate adjustment or something strobish that uh, that really like i am not a fan of because it makes it very hard to see yeah exactly what we're getting but if you can look past it she falls into this pile of just body parts which i mean apparently this guy's been hacking up women left and right and of course her two friends are in there bloodied up but it, it really could have been a very cool sequence if they would have just not been so stylistic mm-hmm. with it. It almost goes, it doesn't, it almost go into slow motion, right? Yeah. I kind of read somewhere, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, I read that there's a cut where that's not in there. It was only the, originally it was like regular, like the speed was regular, everything. And I think for the main release, for some reason, creatively, they decided to go with what the version we've seen. Why? It's it's not effective. It, it takes away from the yeah. moment. Yeah, I don't like it either. I don't like it either. Um, it just it's really hard to see exactly what's going on, and it's just very it's super slow. It's like extra slow motion. It's not just slow motion. It's like extra slow motion. Um, but finally, she gets and then like the minute she gets out of the pit, it, it goes back to like normal speed, and she runs back to the house. Carl's chasing her. She's just running through the house screaming. She goes up to the attic room, and at least she has the sense, the common sense to like grab the gun right away that she remembers because remember she saw the gun earlier. She grabs the gun right away and turns around and like, as Carl's coming towards her, shoots the motherfucker right in the face. Yeah. I mean, good on her, man. Good on her. Ter- Terry yeah. is not by any means the best. She doesn't play she's around. Not fucking around. She, you know, she's not the best final girl whatsoever, but at least like in moments of panic, she like, Gets her ass fucking out she's of there. Smart. Yeah, she's not stupid. I like that. And she gets the job done in one shot. One fucking shot. This <laughs> bitch ain't fucking around, right. man. Right between the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> but this this leads into what is, I mean, the best part of the movie. And if you're going to end on the the best, the strongest aspect of the film, if that's going to be like the note you close on, you did something right. Because if that's it, if that's like the last thing you get is a, a, we're going to get a really fucking great monologue. We're going to get a crazy twist and we're going to about to get a brutal kill. I mean, yeah. wrap it up with a bow. 
if only it was about 15 minutes longer. <laughs> That's my thing. Like, if only this was, take this, what you're about to give me, and draw it out. Like, chase the bitch, run around, fight a little bit but they chose to just end it and that's the one aspect that's kind of like a it takes the wind out of my balloon a little bit you know Mm-hmm. yeah and terry would have lived if she didn't mention the shed because you know the moment where like marion comes up and she's yep. like well you didn't have to kill him blah 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 and she's like well he was chasing me and then she says and i saw the shed that's where it shifts for marion so i'm kind of curious if like if she never mentioned the shed was Marion just gonna let her live? Because that's the kind of the vibe. That's the vibe I got. I did too. Bit. I did too. I think it was. I think that the fact that she mentioned the shed to Marion. That's what. That's what got her killed. Because Marion <laughs> comes up and sees Carl dead, and she's like, "Why did you have to do that? He was harmless." And she's like, "And Terry's screaming at her. He tried to kill me." And Marion's like, "No, he was harmless. He wouldn't. He wouldn't hurt a fly." And Terry's like, well, go out and look at the shed if you think he's so harmless. And right there, that's when everything mm-hmm. shifts. And good for Terry that her last line is honestly her best delivered line in the film. Because <laughs> she's like, right? playing around. If you think he's playing around, go take a look at the shed. Like, she, like, she just, she's done. She gave it. She's exhausted, yeah. <laughs> and after like, you get this pause, and all of a sudden you hear this voice that's now several octaves lower say to Terry Carl had nothing to do with that and you see Terry look up mm-hmm. and like looks at Marion and it's actually a very effective shot and Terry and and Marion's like I'm sorry you had to end this way Terry just as we were becoming friends and Mary she slowly pulls out the machete from its sheath and it's just like this whole shit. This whole thing is fucking bonkers. It's it's crazy. It was a ballsy. It was a ballsy ending. I think it really was because Marion gets the machete and then like literally attacks Terry and pushes her to the ground. And as Terry falls to the ground and and, and Marion standing over, you get you you. She sees a shot of like Marion's dress is like come down a little bit, and you see her chest is covered in hair. And Marion just starts hacking the shit out of her i counted she stabs her 18 times jesus i did like a little count i was like damn shit. <laughs> yeah for being a film that has been relatively low on the gore, bloodless blood, yeah mm-hmm. uh this sequence was shockingly savage um and it really is the the best executed sequence in the film for an array of reasons aside from the shock factor of what is revealed the you know the violence the gore the fact that this character whom marion has been forming a bond with and she acknowledges it she says and we are becoming friends you know she states it before um and and terry starting to realize what's happening she goes to fight back it's not like she just sits there and takes it like she goes to she charges marion and marion gets the best of her and just terry doesn't have a chance and it's it's abrupt there really is no final chase. There's no final, like, Terry doesn't really have a chance to have this final showdown. She's just hacked the fuck up. And what really makes this moment bone-chilling is is the vocal delivery. And I don't know if it was a pitch... I'm assuming it had to be a pitch correction because it's so perfectly dubbed. If it was dubbed, I mean, they did it expertly. I mean, 
either way though it is it is so uncomfortable and the dialogue is building and progressively more and more hateful it is so hateful hateful of her hateful of women and it makes sense because of what the mothers put this character through it just is clear that this character does not want to be living this life has to do this to maintain mm-hmm. some sort of normalcy with the parental figure in their life and has resorted to this life of fucking misery all this character has apparently is the brother who is now dead so this is just uh, marion fucking snaps she's she snaps i mean i'm saying she because we've gotten to know the characters as she but they snap and not why now that i want to say it's understandable but to a certain extent fucking understandable <laughs> like i mean it really like no wonder they're pushed to the limit their life is a life of fucking misery. Yeah, well, she is. She's basically telling as she's hacking Terry to death. She's like, "You don't understand how hard it's been for me to live this way," and you know. And then she does launch into this whole hateful tirade against women, and she's like, "You are nothing but a fucking what does she call her? Like a all these names? T- a tyrant? Yeah, like some, a she says like tyrant and subservient, stuff like- groveling, putrid scum. Yeah, I mean." Mm. Sh- she just unloads this vile, venomous, like as just... she's hacking this poor girl eighteen times, apparently, and she's covered blood is splattered. She's covered in blood by the end of it, and by the end, by the time she's done, we hear mother, <laughs> you know, downstairs saying, "Marion, what are you doing up there? Do you have another one of your men?" And Marion answers her in her female voice and says, "No, mother." And then the film ends. Well, and that little mm-hmm. fucking moment right there explains so much. It explains why the mother keeps thinking she's hearing the male voices. It explains, uh, I'm sure this is not the first time. I mean, based off the body count that we saw in that fucking shed. Like, I mean, how many times has this happened? How many? T- well, it's happened It's happened 23 times because if you remember the uh, radio broadcast at the beginning of the film, they mentioned that 23 young women have gone missing from this area. And yeah, that's, that's the thing is like, you find out so much. Like, mother has a, leg- a legit reason now for thinking that, Marion is having men over to the house because what mother is hearing is fucking Marion pleasuring herself every night as a man, you know? And then the fact that like, you know, you have this and it's, it's just so, it's so interesting. You have Marion who is not, let's, let's again, folks, we are putting this out there. This Mary, this character is not transgendered. Okay. This character is not gay. This character is making a choice that they feel they have to make to live as a woman to please their mother. Because there is that whole conversation earlier in the film where Marion tells Terry the fact that the mother is basically has gone blind with rage and is so what her husband did has fucked her up so much mentally that she's forgotten that she even has sons. So apparently like one day Marion just decided to come as a woman, as a girl and, and approach her mother as her daughter. And because the mother was so traumatized and so mentally, you know, uh, fucked up from what her husband did, just accepted it because I have heard some people question, how does the mother not know? 
you know, Edith just accepted it because she is fucking nuts. Like we, we got the dialogue that, that Marion told Terry that her mother basically lost her mind and has wanted nothing to do with men. So Marion felt like she had no choice, but to dress as a female to be able to get her mother's affection to be able to take be taken care of um, from a mother child perspective. But that doesn't mean that that's, she wanted to be a woman, right? She was doing it for her mother. And then it doesn't, you know, think about it. That's why she was still having all in Mary and the Marion characters having all these sexual urges and was going after these females. But the fact that she was, you know, presenting herself as a female going after females and, uh, you know, it's just a very like deep twisted plot, but you know, it, it definitely gives a little, it definitely gives a lot more explanation than something like sleepaway camp does. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there are, like I've said a few times over the course of this, there's a lot of little aspects that still leave me with questions. Like, how many of the victims were the the brother that killed them versus how many of the, the victims were killed by Marion? Because Marion states that it was not his fault, but the brother is the one that killed Nancy in the woods on the road. See, I got the vibe that that was Marion. I thought it was Marion too. Was it really? Look at the well. If you look at the person, like the legs you, are very skinny. Yeah, you look at the person again. It's very much very Marion's uh, body frame. Oh, so things are un- unfolding before my very eyes. I think that's why Marion t- gave her such specific directions. And I also think, like the moment when uh, Carl breaks through the window during when Terry's in the shed. I kind of get the vibe that maybe like Carl's in a sense trying to like save her. You know what I mean? Cause he, he's very frantic. I kind of got, I, yeah, I got that too. I honestly don't think Carl was killing anybody. Oh, wow. Okay. I think, I think that Carl was after Terry because he was trying to protect her. And he really didn't, you know, obviously if you have, if he's, you know, mentally has a mental issue, he can't, and he can't talk, he can't really tell her what is going on. And maybe he witnessed Marion kill Gloria. And so now he knows what's going to happen to Terry. So he's trying to, you know, warn her, protect her the best way he can. And, you know, I mean, it just happens that it makes it look like it's. You know, because even why? Okay, so why would Marion, if if Carl was killing people, also why wouldn't have Marion just told Terry that at the end of the film, before Marion kills Terry, she says Carl had nothing to do with that. He's harmless. Yeah, she admits to it. Yeah, you know, and I will say this. I mean, at the end of the day, my gripes with this film aside, because I have a few, I think the key component of a good film is a film that keeps you talking afterward a film that keeps you thinking asking questions yeah. like i there's a lot of things that i think i still would take away from this movie more so revisiting it another few times because honestly like i mean yeah you're right that's a very valid point i mean she says it she says that he's harmless now was that her making a statement in protection of her brother or is that the actual fact that could very well just be that she is the one that is killing all of these girls and that it alone is makes for a very curious story arc because i mean how much self-hate does this character possess that they are killing these girls off because of 
basically what their life has come to, having the masquerade as one of them, developing this absolute mm-hmm. disgust towards women because of what the mother has basically forced upon this individual. I mean, it is, like I said earlier, it is a very intriguing character study. And also, if you notice, too, uh, whenever we hear the masturbating scenes, it's usually after we see the f- the figure going to the shed or, you know what I mean? Like, so I'm wondering, is the mass like when they masturbate, is it like after a kill or something? Because both times it's when she no- sees the person going to the shed. You know what I mean? And then they come back in the house. So I wonder if that has something to do with it. Yeah, there is. Yeah, the film definitely leaves you thinking. You know, if the final if the mm-hmm. final couple minutes of the film doesn't just send, send chills up your spine, you know, I don't know. It's it's some of the it's some of the creepiest. It's one of the creepiest endings I've seen in a film, especially like an eighty slasher film. It's it's just so visceral, so brutal, and then the fact that she's delivering such just um, vitriolic dialogue towards this poor girl as she's hacking her to death with a machete in this like male voice it's just very unsettling i feel like why this film why it's one that i've always remembered through all these years is i would say it's definitely in my top 10 for like favorite endings of a horror movie like it's like one that i always remember like even though the film itself is like we've said like drags on and on and the lead the lead uh, young girls are very wooden, but that ending for me is what made it so memorable that leaves this impression for me. And I definitely would say that that ending that was last like 10 minutes, I would totally say is like one of my favorite like finales of a horror film. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, going into this, the comparisons to Psycho were plentiful. I came across quite a few of them, but I have to say the only thing that this possesses that makes me think psycho aside from the blatant name ripoffs that were really unnecessary honestly and i think would have done the movie more favor to not have associated itself at all with psycho um Mm. psycho focuses on a, a character who has an obsession with their mother and forms an alter ego that they're almost they're unaware of you know that forms a takes on an alternate personality, becomes that mother figure because they're so used to having the mother in their life that after that mother's passed, it's filling the void. This film is a very different story. It's a character who despises their mother and is very self-aware of exactly what choices they're making and what they're doing to appease their mother for the lesser of two evils. No matter what, their life is going to be a miserable with that mother. But that mother needs someone to take care of them in that massive fucking mansion. That mother will not coexist with a male. So, thus, the son has to become the daughter to at least make their life somewhat able to... <laughs> uh, uh, somewhat capable of having some form of peace, even though it's still fucking miserable. Um, there are similarities... But honestly, it's not enough for it to really warrant being a psycho ripoff, in my opinion. It, it's just because I think people think of that whole gender switch and they think, oh, psycho. It's the one that 
people think of when it comes to that. But the story mm-hmm. is very different. The outcome is very different. The finale is very different. And I think this movie stands on its own as a piece of, of horror cinema and a very intriguing and is- interesting one at that. Absolutely. It has, it has some flaws, but overall I, I find this movie very interesting. I can't really say much else. I, 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 I like this movie and upon, you know, upon multiple viewings, I watched it three times for this and I had seen it uh, once years ago, once I, when I bought the DVD and really all I remembered about it, really what stuck with me was the ending, but watching it, this this time for the podcast you know these three times and really paying attention to it there are a lot of very subtle and interesting aspects to the film i don't mind that it's a slow burn i feel like once you kind of know what's going on and and you watch it again i i don't feel like it's as boring as maybe it is before you know what's going on if that makes any sense you catch a lot of stuff if you just can pay attention even with the bad acting, just pay attention to what's going on. And and the payoff is very well earned, I will say. It's not a cheat. It's not out of the blue. I read some, I just happened to scan across one review on this. When I was looking at IMDb, as somebody that gave it like one star was talking about the ending was didn't make any sense and just came out of the blue. I'm like, you then you weren't even paying attention to the fucking film. Everything about the ending is fed to you if you're paying attention. You know, uh, so yeah, I, that's, that's my thought on the film. I, I feel like it is an underrated little gem of the eighties. Um, yeah. it doesn't get talked about nearly enough. It deserves a lot more attention, especially for that ballsy ending. And I'm not even talking about like the, yeah, the shock of it, you know, of her being a man, but I'm just talking about like the, sh- the, the, the abruptness and the brutality that is inflicted on this final, the girl that you think is going to survive and then just is brutally brutally hacked to death and also the way that they end it like so melancholy where the mother's just like do you have your men up there and she's like no mother and it's just so like sad and you're like oh this is just gonna repeat itself you know and then it ends because you yeah because you know she's going right back to this miserable life like nothing was nothing was accomplished having these girls come to this house except for more, being more victims there's no ending like marion is literally going to go get cleaned up go downstairs and continue to be physically or, or not not physically but uh, emotionally and verbally abused by her mother while she's killing innocent women mm-hmm. that happen upon the the area because of her you know repressed self-repressed you know identity it's it's just crazy it's so sad oh how and like it's one of those things like when you think of this story like how long until this caves in on her too you know like i mean a care this character can only exist this way for so long before they snap and either can't do it anymore kill the parent like something's gonna happen i was praying to god after all of this she was gonna go down that that staircase and just fucking (laughs) axe that mom yeah to death because that mom like i said she's she is in my opinion that the, the main villain here or is the 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 trigger for all of the issues mm-hmm. you know? um and i was really wanting to see her get her comeuppance and unfortunately she does not she just goes on thinking everything's peachy keen and fuck that mom she's a piece of shit um but yeah mm-hmm. i mean eventually something's gotta give no nobody can exist living a fake personality a fake life for that long without something caving in you know and um i'd be honestly 
I would have been interested to see, have seen a sequel to this film because I think that that story could have really evolved. But I understand why mm-hmm. it didn't happen. You know, I'm just curious because, like, for me, I've always, my main thing why I would love to see a sequel too is just because you know how I was saying at the ending, it to me. If she never mentioned the shed, I honestly got the vibe Merrick Marion would have never killed her. So I want to know those twenty three other girls that were murdered. What? Why did Marion murder them? Was it a similar thing where they found out Marion was a kill, like a killer, like or does Marion? Why does she kill the girls? Like that's what I'm kind of curious about because I got the vibe that if she connects with them, she doesn't want to murder them unless they find out the secret in the shed. You know, that's what I would like to see kind of explored. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's a lot of uh, open to interpret elements of the film. How does the brother play into it? Does the brother maybe mm-hmm. lure, I don't want to say lure the girls, but get himself into almost like an of mice and men situation. The brother is simple mm-hmm. and sweet and curious and wants to play and makes the wrong choices. And then to prevent the brother from getting, you know, injured or put in jail or what have you marion's got to finish shit up you know um i mean there's a lot of ways you can interpret the story the relationship she has with the brother the self-hate her hatred towards women i mean she has a lot of fuel for that fire and i'm kind of glad the remake the awful remake didn't do that storyline because you know they would have done it in a very offensive way you know i mean like i still felt like this movie still did the subject matter in a pretty classy way, if that makes sense, compared to, like, I think if a film did it now, I think they would have been very offensive and, like, missed the mark, if that makes sense. They would have, yeah. They would have missed all the subtleties of the original story, right? I really do, yeah. I mean, unless you got the original director and writer involved in it, I feel like they would have missed all, all the subtleties and just made it a strict, like, trans killer, which this film is not really, that's not what this film is. No, I was just saying, I would love to see this film get, like, a Vinegar Syndrome release or something where we have a special, like, I would like to hear from the creatives that made this, like, in a special features about, like, what, like, just, like, about the whole creative process and about how the story was a very, like, cat and mouse murder thrill like mystery thriller and like just about their um motivation for the story like i would like to hear more about the creative process for this film yeah definitely and i think one thing that like i want to revisit for enclosure my thoughts on this movie and people who think this is offensive is i don't know what their intentions were writing this but it's very clear that when they wrote marion's dialogue whoever handled it they did it with a certain delicacy and element of caring and uh sadness and they made a very human character experiencing a lot of trauma and a lot of 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 struggles and they did not write a character who i found easy to make fun of uh it's not a tossaway character she's not a parody she's not exaggerated She's just a character that you feel for. And, like, there's got to be something to be said for that. Like, this character was not made, mm-hmm. was not created to be mocked or made fun of or a, the butt of a joke. This is a character that's tortured and tormented and struggling and coping with it in unhealthy ways. I agree with that. Yeah, so that is 1982's Unhinged. Unhinged unhinged so yeah jay thank you for choosing this film and coming on and discussing it with us 
Thank you for having me. I had a great time. Yeah, very interesting discussion. Yeah. So, folks, we, before we end here, before we sign off, we will tell you our next episode. Uh, do you want to? Do you want to handle that, Roger? What's our next episode? Our next episode, and I think a delightful pick for the seasonal transition into the winter. We're <laughs> going to be watching the classic curtains, one that Jay actually was hoping to watch. But this <laughs> this next, we have another guest coming, um, and first pick he wanted this title. Uh, and so, Jay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to to it's fine. To, to, to yank <laughs> it from you, but um, we've got Brandon Paris from the cast and crew of Death Drop Gorgeous. Um, he's extremely handsome. He's <laughs> very pleasant. <laughs> he's all the things I want in a man, and he's very talented. My God, I mean, we can't talk enough about that movie and the success it's seeing, and rightfully so. And we're very lucky to be having him on this next episode. Um, Troy and I have both been cramming to get these episodes out because we're both taking vacations at the exact same time. Troy, where are you going? I'm not going anywhere nearly as exciting as you. I'm just going to Las Vegas. It's like my yearly uh, Thanksgiving getaway. Let me tell you, Troy, you've yet to meet Teresa Padone, but we're going to meet up in Las Vegas. Oh, we need to. Teresa loves Las Vegas. I love Las Vegas. She loves pools, and I (laughs) love Las Vegas. And Gustavo loves Las Vegas. So I completely understand why you're going. We all should go. I will be going to Greece next week because I'm fancy and pretentious. So um, I will not be here, but we are recording this episode uh, with Brandon very soon. I cannot wait. He's such a stud muffin, just like you, Jay. And Jay, we want to thank you for coming (laughs) on. I want to give you a moment to hawk your goods. What, uh, What of yours can be viewed right now by our fan base? Where can they find you on social media? How can they uh, how can they follow you in your craft? All right. So on YouTube and Vimeo, just look up Jay Palmieri Jr. I have my new film uh, Carve on YouTube. Um, so that's right there. And my team and I are gearing up to make, I kind of want to do a holiday horror trilogy. So the next installment of Carve is going to be Christmas horror and then a Thanksgiving one, New Year's Eve. Yeah. So that's what I'm gearing up now. And then Instagram is uh, jpalmieri13. Um, and that's pretty mu- and that's pretty much my social media as I've used. I don't have Twitter yet. <laughs> so, I mean, I have Twitter, but like I literally all I do on Twitter is look up things that other people have created and share it. I don't type any of my own or create any of my yeah. own uh, material. So I feel no, like I don't that. either. I don't know. I never really understood Twitter. Like I, I've, I never get any sort of response from Twitter that I usually let I get like on Facebook or Instagram. So I just, I'll go on there to retweet something. If somebody tweeted mm-hmm. something about like one of my films or about the podcast, I'll retweet that. But yeah, I don't ever create any of my normal tweets, but yeah, or, re- or my own personal tweets. But yeah, Jay, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. It was a, it was fun. This episode definitely yeah, I think this is gonna be one of our episodes that, like, I mean, we're a we're a, a sack of fun, Troy and I, just a barrel of laughs. But this is also <laughs> one that I feel we, we sound so insightful. Our podcast serves a real purpose, right? We're such insightful gays. <laughs> 
No, I li- I was telling Troy when we hung out that I was like, I listen to you guys every morning when the new episode comes out, when I'm getting ready for work. So I'm a true devoted fan. I left my review, five-star oh, review. Oh. So <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Oh, yes. oh, see, look at it. If, if, yep. if Jay can leave a five-star mm-hmm. review, all you other people yep, can get off your asses and do it too. You all yes. better follow in this It takes step, two seconds, everybody. <laughs> There you go. Two yes. seconds on Apple Podcasts. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And it takes two seconds to look him up on YouTube and Vimeo. So go watch his uh, his short films. Go watch Carve. I fucking loved it. Yes. Uh, he's got a great. lot of talent and he works with a lot of talent. And I can't wait to see more from you soon, Jay. Thank you. And then my feature film Soulmate will hopefully be out by next summer. So then... Hopefully, you guys can review that. I'll love to hear what you say. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I can't wait. Awesome. Well, everyone, we've rambled two hours about a 80-minute movie. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was deserving. It was yes. deserving. It was absolutely deserving. Yeah. So, everyone, good night until next week when we talk about curtains. Roger and I will be wearing our little ice skating outfits. So. <laughs> yeah. Make Leslie proud. Make yes. Leslie proud. Our <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Until then, guys, everyone have a wonderful evening. Thanks for tuning in to Dark Night of the Podcast. Good night. Night.